Good afternoon. <laughs> Third time is a charm. Uh, welcome to the uh, Notre Dame International uh, Security Center uh, seminar series. Uh, before I introduce uh, today's uh, distinguished speaker, um, just a, uh, a couple of logistic uh, uh, things I want to uh, mention. Um, we're passing around the uh, sign-up sheet, just uh, you know, so I know who's who and what's what. There's bad behavior. I want to have accountability uh, uh, subsequently. Also, if this is your first time at uh, an NDISC seminar, and you'd like to get on our mailing list, uh, please put your name um, and email on that sheet. We promise you we will only send you a little bit of spam um, in fundraising and uh, uh, solicitation. Um, being a uh, 21st century operation, uh, our uh, format is going to be hybrid. So for those of you who are here in the flesh, in vivo, as they say, uh, during the Q&A, I'll recognize you, and then uh, my colleague Anika Johnson will come around uh, with a microphone. Um, but we do have uh, a, uh, a number of people attending uh, in cyberspace. In addition to the GRU, our old friend Fritz, Fritz Heisen, um, and some other folks. So for the uh, people who are uh, watching uh, the session today online, if you want to get uh, a question to uh, our guests, please put it in the chat and then I will convey it um, to uh, our speaker uh, during the, uh, the Q&A. Um, so I think I've covered all the uh, modalities of the uh, format of the seminar. Um, so it only uh, remains for me to uh, introduce uh, our speaker today, uh, Major Jeremy Grunert, who is a uh, professor uh, at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He teaches um, in the Department of Law, um, and he specializes um, in uh, space law. Um, he has a uh, B.A. from Claremont McKenna College, um, and a MPP and a JD um, from Pepperdine University. I'm getting a geographical uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, a geolocation here. I'm guessing uh, you're from the uh, left coast. Um, he's uh, had a variety of uh, different experiences uh, prior to going to the uh, uh, the Air Force Academy, which uh, I won't uh, go through, uh, other than to uh, say that uh, his uh, read ahead uh, on the peaceful use of outer space uh, was uh, both succinct um, and quite engaging in a topic uh, that I haven't thought nearly as much about as I should. So thank you, Jeremy, for making the long trip out here. And uh, please join me in giving Major Gruner to warm South. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you all for being here. And thank you for inviting me. I really am privileged to be here today speaking with you about a topic that I really have come to love since the Air Force sent me to start studying it just a couple of years ago. And so I 
really appreciate the great introduction. I won't bore you guys with like an extensive biography. Uh, just to let you know a little bit more about who I am, I have been in the Air Force for a little over eight years, uh, had, like we heard, several assignments before I came out to the Air Force Academy, was previously stationed at Interlake Air Base, Turkey, RAF Lake and Heath in the United Kingdom. I've deployed to Qatar and Afghanistan, and the Air Force sent me to the University of Mississippi School of Law during the 2019-2020 school year to specialize in space law, get an LLM in air and space law from that university for the purpose of coming to the academy to teach one of their new courses, the space law course, which uh, is a really fun course. It's a really great course. Um, I'm actually teaching it this semester. It's a spring course uh, for the cadets there. And so we had enough students to actually get two classes worth this semester, which is awesome. And we're hoping for many more in the future. So uh, with that, I should also add my standard disclaimer, right? While I am here presenting to you my military uniform, right? Uh, none of my comments or anything in this presentation should necessarily be construed as the official position of the United States Air Force Academy, the Department of the Air Force, the DOD, or the United States government as a whole, right? Speaking to you in my uh, private capacity um, as a representative of the Air Force Academy, sure, but again, standard disclaimer. There you go. Awesome. And so I titled my presentation to you all today, Lest the Stars Totter, right? Outer space in the national security context, or I should say in the international security context, because what we're focusing certainly on, or I'm focusing certainly on kind of the United States perspective on these issues, this truly is an international issue with respect to outer space and security issues in space. And it always has been, as we will see. Um, but Lest the Stars Totter is a quote from a poem by Edgar Allan Poe, Al-Araf. And Al-Araf is the title of the seventh surah of the Quran. And what it means is the heights. It means the heights in Arabic. And it's the Islamic equivalent of limbo. And one of the things that I found unique kind of reading through right, Poe's poem about this topic, right, is the idea that those who inhabit Al-Araf, right, the heights, are neither completely good nor completely evil, right? It balances out, certainly in Islamic theology, the idea is that eventually those people will ascend, right, to paradise, um, which is ultimately part of the subject of Poe's poem, right? But to every heart, a barrier and a ban, lest the stars totter in the guilt of man. Very interesting poem, very early poem by Poe, not one of his better known, not one of his better poems, arguably, but a very fascinating poem nonetheless, from which I stole the title. So lest the stars totter in the guilt of man. Outer space, the heights, right? An area above airspace, above terrestrial space, above land, right? That belongs to no one, that all can use. Nothing is either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so, right? Hamlet. 
And outer space, for all its benefits, has many things that threaten it as well, right? Just this slide alone, obviously, this is um, a very early article, 1978. The article published by Dr. Donald Kessler and uh, Burton Corpalet on what would become known as the Kessler syndrome, right? The idea that space debris in orbit could actually become so pervasive as to threaten the use of certain orbits entirely, right? A threat that is only compounded by things like human ASAT testing, as well, right, as launches, as well as destruction of actual active satellites through accidental means. But something that is continually growing and that is very, very difficult to stop, right? And so outer space in the 1950s, right, was an area of promise. It was an area unspoiled. It was an area that seemed to be somewhere that humanity could go together, right, potentially, and use for the benefit of all humanity, right? Something that's reflected in later space law. But as we have seen an increased use of outer space, increased competition between space powers, we have seen more articles like this, right? Get ready for Kessler syndrome to wreck outer space. U.S. Space Command condemns Russia for anti-satellite weapons testing. We're all losers in the space arms race. How did we get here from there? Right, from those early days of the 1950s when space was unspoiled to a situation where, in the words of the Department of Defense, right, we love our pithy little uh, uh, three letter things, right? Three C's congested, contested, competitive, right? That's how we describe space and have described it for approximately the last 15 years. Why is outer space so important? Why are we talking about it in the national security context and indeed in the international security context? It's because it intersects with almost everything that we do every day in the modern world, okay? Technology and telecommunications, right? The fact that each one of us has one of these in our pockets, right? Without outer space, right, without telecommunications, it would be so much more difficult, right, to use things like that. Navigation, GPS, and GNSS systems, right, developed beginning in the 1970s into the 1980s, now such a critical component of our modern world, not just for navigation, but also for things like financial transactions. Indeed, our entire banking system, right, something that has been in the news quite a bit recently with Right, international banking transactions related to SWIFT and sanctions on Russia. All of those systems right, rely on GPS and geonavigational services right, for timing and transaction methods. Stock exchanges as well. Right? So banking, finance, all interrelated to the GPS system and to space technologies. Weather forecasting, of course, is something that in the modern world we've come to rely on, right? 
you can obviously walk outside and see what the weather is, but if you want to know whether it's going to snow two inches or 10, right, you would like to know, um, you would like to be able to access these satellite systems in order to gain that information, right? Mapping and topography, a critical component of many remote sensing technologies. And even more so than that, right, depending on the sensors on satellites, any number of things that those satellites can sense and do, uh, which is why disaster management is also a critical outer space technology as well. So why is outer space so important? It's everything that we do in the modern world. It's the world we built, it's the world we live in. And so while I think that sometimes the DOD, the Air Force, various armed services don't always do a good job necessarily of conveying why certain things are important. U.S. Space Command, right, which has recently been resurrected as of 2019, I think their PA people actually came up with a winner on this one, never a day without space, right? Never a day without space campaign that U.S. Space Command has put together to emphasize the fact, right, to the American public that we use space every day. It's a critical component of what we do. It's a critical area for national security and also for civilian interactions as well. And so again, how did we get here from there, right? The first human-made space object was only launched into outer space in 1957, right? The Sputnik launch by the Soviet Union in 1957. And we're here only 60 years later. 65 years later, from space as an unspoiled environment with just one man-made object beeping in the night, right, as it orbits the planet, to a situation in which hundreds of thousands of pieces of space debris, as well as thousands of active satellites, orbit the Earth every day, where we actually have human beings living consistently in orbit on the International Space Station. So let's talk about that for a moment and talk about these military questions and the way in which national and international security has played a role in outer space since the very beginning of the space age. Okay. And so obviously the Sputnik launch occurred during President Eisenhower's presidency, uh, again in 1957. Um, but the United States was thinking about outer space even before the Sputnik launch, right? Something that isn't incredibly well known. President Eisenhower's first presidential policy on outer space focused on satellites and was published in 1955, emphasizing one of Eisenhower's key political ideas with respect to space, which would soon become one of the key legal ideas in the space environment as well. And that idea was the freedom of space a differentiation between airspace and outer space in which outer space did not have that same national sovereignty, right? That was associated with airspace. Because if that were the case, if outer space was treated the same way as airspace, it would be next to impossible, right? To launch a satellite, to put a man-made object in orbit without other countries objecting to that as a violation of their sovereignty. And so interestingly, while President Eisenhower received a lot of flack, right, in the aftermath of the Sputnik launch for being 
soft on science, soft on the Soviet Union, setting the United States back vis-a-vis -vis, right, the communist regime of the Soviet Union. In actuality, he and his advisors knew what was happening. And there's at least some evidence that they were quite pleased the Soviets launched first because they established that principle of freedom of space based on the fact that Sputnik overflew so many countries and nobody objected. But one of the reasons for President Eisenhower's focus on this freedom of space issue was his desire to develop reconnaissance satellites, a critical component, right, of his intelligence gathering goal to protect the United States from the Soviet Union. So even prior to the Sputnik launch, even in the earliest days of the space age, right, this question of national security and this larger question of international security, right, the fate of the free world versus the Eastern Bloc was at play. And so if you, if you read my article in War on the Rocks uh, that was kind of posted as the pre-reading to this talk, uh, you'll probably see that one of the things that was emphasized by the United States very early on after the launch of Sputnik was this idea that outer space be used for peaceful purposes. And this is something that we've never walked back from. This is something that we've persistently emphasized as a United States policy position. What has shifted, though, is our interpretation of what that means. Because there's a large amount of evidence that at least in the initial days after the Sputnik launch, the initial months, probably up to a one to two years after the launch, peaceful purposes meant exactly what you probably think that it means, right? Which is exclusively peaceful, non-military purposes. Now, President Eisenhower and his advisors didn't believe that that necessarily encompassed, right, reconnaissance satellites as a military use of space, despite its military support function, right? However, out of fear that that would be the case, the United States perception of what peaceful purposes means actually developed over time to one that was much more um, emphasizing this idea of non-aggression, the idea that peaceful purposes, peaceful use of outer space was non-aggressive use of space. And part of the reason for this was, again, primary focus on reconnaissance satellites, but really any dual use technology in outer space that could be used possibly, right, for a military support purpose. If that was something that was going to be considered military as opposed to exclusively peaceful, right, that would be a problem that would inhibit our uses of space. Now, at least initially, right, the Soviet Union opposed that exclusively peaceful interpretation of the use of outer space because they thought they were ahead in the space race. As it became more and more clear that we were catching up and as the United States perception of peaceful use of space changed, the positions of the United States and the USSR reversed themselves. And for a brief period of time at the beginning of the 1960s, it was the Soviet Union who insisted that peaceful use of space meant exclusively peaceful use of space. Very quickly though, the two sides came together and agreed that actually peaceful use of space probably really is more non-aggressive. Part of the reason for this, of course, was the Soviet development of reconnaissance satellites in the early 1960s as well. But during the late Eisenhower administration and then the early Kennedy administration, 
One of the things that President Eisenhower and then subsequently President Kennedy focused on as well was the development of international outer space law, which to some degree is where I come into this because that was, of course, what I focused on during my LLM studies. And so President Eisenhower's representatives at the United Nations, Henry Cabot Lodge and others, uh, proposed the creation of what was at first an ad hoc committee on the peaceful uses of outer space, which was passed by the UN General Assembly, which later became a permanent committee on the peaceful uses of outer space, still in existence today, right? Copious, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which meets annually, has two subcommittees, right? A science and technology committee and a legal committee as well. And the work of Copious was stymied at first because the Soviet Union and other members of the Eastern Bloc refused to participate. But as the United States was catching up, catching up, right, from the Soviet perspective at least, uh, to the Soviets when, with respect to space technology in the early 1960s, the Soviets saw the benefit of participating in Copious largely as a way to, from their perspective, legally stymie the U.S., right? Both sides were fearful of where the other would go if they weren't constrained by international law. And so the Soviet Union began to participate in the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which led to some fairly rapid development of international outer space law, right? Much of international law uh, has you know, been created over the course of decades, centuries, millennia, right? Outer space law was largely the work of a decade, okay? So initially, once the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc started participating in Copious, we got a non-binding declaration of legal principles that was passed by the UN General Assembly in 1963, okay? And with respect to military use, and peaceful versus quasi-peaceful, non-aggressive, et cetera, uses of space, didn't really say a whole lot. Okay? The preamble to this declaration of legal principles says, it's the common interest of all mankind to explore and use outer space for peaceful purposes. There's no other mention of military use of space in the declaration of legal principles. <coughs> However, over the next Four years, this date is wrong. Apologies for that. It's 1967, 1960, not 1969. Um, Copius developed the Outer Space Treaty, the first binding treaty to involve issues of international outer space law. And in many ways, some of its provisions were carbon copies of the Declaration of Legal Principles, right? Including that portion of the preamble that talks about the common interest in mankind and the use of outer space for peaceful purposes, right? But there are a number of other relevant provisions as well. Article one talks about essentially three freedoms, the freedom to use outer space, the freedom to explore outer space, and the freedom to engage in scientific investigation in outer space, right? Three key freedoms granted to all the states that signed the Outer Space Treaty, demonstrating that outer space really is quote unquote, the province of all mankind, right? No single state is going to be the overlord of space. Something that 
is explored too in Article 2, which isn't mentioned here, which prohibits national appropriation in space as well, right? Very critical components of outer space law to prevent what at the time were the two space-faring superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States, from essentially seizing control of space and denying its benefits, right, to the other smaller, less technologically advanced, at least at the time, countries. Article three is very, very, very important because it applies international law as a whole to outer space, okay? So outer space is governed by elect specialists, right? A specialized law of international outer space law, but more broadly, right? International law as a whole, including the Charter of the United Nations, including LOAC or the laws of war, right? In the event of an armed conflict in space, all of those things, are also going to apply. But it's really Article 4 that's the military article of the Outer Space Treaty. It's divided into two subparagraphs. And the way that you can think about these two paragraphs is that the first is about interplanetary space and orbital space. Okay? So all of the outer space void between planets the orbital space around a celestial body, okay? That's what the first paragraph of Article 4 is all about. And what it says is, parties to the treaty undertake not to place in orbit around the Earth any object carrying nuclear weapons or any other kinds of weapons of mass destruction or to station those weapons on celestial bodies or in outer space in any other manner. So what does it prohibit? Nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction. To the extent that a weapon is neither of those things, a quote-unquote conventional weapon, stationing such a weapon in outer space would not be a violation of the Outer Space Treaty. Totally different, though, for celestial bodies, right? The second paragraph about celestial bodies, the moon and other celestial bodies shall be used by all states' parties to the treaty exclusively for peaceful purposes, okay? So here you see that language of exclusively peaceful. Harkening back to what we had said very shortly after the launch of Sputnik, that perception of the use of outer space as exclusively peaceful. This is the only mention of exclusively peaceful use in the outer space treaty. Okay. So for celestial bodies, any state party to the treaty right, is prohibited from, for instance, militarizing the moon. Right? <coughs> One of the you know, kind of jokes of the recent Space Force series starring Steve Carell right, is boots on the moon right? POTUS wants boots on the moon by 2024. Um, not necessarily something that the United States or China or Russia could do under the Outer Space Treaty, right? Um, you can use military personnel for scientific research. Obviously, many of the astronauts of the Soviet Union, the United States, and the People's Republic of China have been military members, right? Including many of right, the astronauts from the United States who set foot on the moon. But as long as right, they're being used for scientific research or other peaceful purposes, that's fine. Militarizing the moon or using celestial bodies for military purposes is not. And so a quick word on distinctions, right? We talked about this idea, this concept of exclusively peaceful versus non-aggression, right? peaceful use as non-aggressive use, which is also to some degree a question of actual space weapons versus space support functions. 
And as we saw on the previous slide about how outer space is important, right? It's partially important because of all of those right, reasons that were listed on the slide. Many of those correspond very closely to these space support functions, right? Things that can be used for civilian benefit and civilian purpose, but military benefit and military purpose as well, right? Satellite navigation, right? A critical, critical, especially in the modern military, military asset and tool, right? The GPS system um, was, uh, for those of you who might not know, developed by the American military, right? Starting in the late 1970s into the 1980s, really first used in a big way during the Gulf War of 1991, and has only become more of a critical military support component since that time, right? To a very significant degree, the American military wouldn't be able to function as it currently does without the use of GPS, right? Satellite-based communications, right? Critical support function. Mobile network provision, something that is in the news as well, right? Because with the situation in Ukraine, there was the threat that internet would be cut off for the Ukrainians. You saw the Ukrainian right, foreign minister imploring Elon Musk on Twitter for assistance with Starlink, right? And Elon Musk delivered, right? Starlink dishes were delivered to Ukraine yesterday. And I actually just read an article this afternoon that somebody tested one and it worked. So, right, mobile network provision, critical. Satellite-based ISR, right, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. Obviously, reconnaissance satellites, one of the early primary uses of space. Eisenhower's whole uh, raison d'etat for much of what he did in the space arena, right? An example here that you might remember, this is a satellite photograph of a launch pad at one of Iran's rocket launching sites. This was, of course, the photograph that was infamously tweeted by President Trump when uh, he tweeted at Iran about the loss of their rocket, which exploded on the launch pad. Right? And then, of course, space traffic management or space tracking systems of various types, right, both orbital and ground-based, right, to track what's actually on orbit, both for the purposes of protecting satellite systems and things of that nature, but also, right, to see what is out there and to see what other states have on orbit. And then you have actual weapons, right, actual space weapons, both real and imagined, okay, because a lot of space weapons have been proposed. Many are physically very uh, unlikely to ever actually work. For those of you who have heard of quote unquote rods from God, the idea that you could have tungsten rods stationed in orbit that through the very force of gravity, if you dropped them right, would impact the earth with the force of a high explosive bomb, right? There's some uh, orbital mechanics reasons why maybe that might not work out so well, but there are, some actual or at least likely, right, orbital weapons that could exist, jamming and spoofing weapons, on-orbit anti-satellite weapons of a kinetic nature, right, which um, seem to be potentially under development by some of the United States uh, potential rivals, such as the Russian Federation. Um, General 
uh, Raymond of the United States Space Force um, has called out Russia for some orbital tests of such a weapon system uh, publicly. And then non-kinetic on-orbit ASATs, right? Things that would interfere with other satellites in a non-kinetic way, right? Possibly electronic warfare, jamming, spoofing, et cetera. You also have earth to space weapons, right? That could interfere with satellites in a variety of ways. Again, jamming and spoofing, probably among the easiest ways to interfere with satellites and what they do, but terrestrially launched ASATs, like the one that the Russian Federation tested back in November of this past year, are also a grave concern. They're a grave concern, not just because of the threat they pose to the satellites of the United States and partner nations, right? But to everyone in the space environment because of the debris that's created from a kinetic ASAT test, or not just a test, right? If there was an actual ASAT attack on a satellite. Again, you could have a non-kinetic terrestrial ASAT dazzling, blinding a satellite, cyber attacks, or attacks on terrestrial uplink or downlink facilities. Right? You probably can't read the text on the slide. Sorry, it's a little small. The point of this slide is this, right? So President Trump got a lot of flack back in 2018-2019, kind of during the lead up to the creation of Space Force for citing outer space as a quote unquote war fighting domain, right? And of course the creation of Space Force itself received uh, you know, a wide range of opinions, but many of which were derisive, derogatory, right? Treating it as a joke. Um, the fact of the matter is the creation of the United States Space Force is possibly behind the curve of a couple of the United States international um, potential rivals. Okay. The Russian Federation has had a space-related military organization um, since prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, but even in the early days after the fall, right, when the Russian Federation was getting itself set up, right, had an entire military sub-organization focused on outer space affairs. And the Chinese in 2015, during one of their military reorganizations, created what is called the Strategic Support Force, which is really kind of an information warfare organization, but focuses on space as well as cyber, as well as informational warfare. Okay. Now, the United States has had Air Force Space Command uh, a sub-command within the Air Force focused on space since the early 1980s. However, the fact of the matter is, right, that Space Force, a military quasi-service, right, it is a service organized under the Department of the Air Force, very much like the Marine Corps is organized under the Department of the Navy. The fact of the matter is that, you know, the development of this force is very, very important not because it's a kind of a new recognition of outer space as a warfighting domain, but it's a recognition of something that space was always threatening to become, right? With some of the things that not just, right, the United States itself in previous iterations of its outer space affairs with the Air Force, with other services, but what its international competitors were doing in space as well. 
And so really between the three major space powers, the United States, the Russians, and the Chinese, there's very little differentiation in this concept of outer space as a warfighting domain. And even though President Trump got a lot of flack for saying that in the 2018-2019 timeframe, right, that was something that the Russian aerospace forces and the SSF had been saying for at least several years at that point. And so I'm, I'm winding down a little bit, but just to kind of give you a sense of the national security and international security threats that exist both in the space environment, right, and that could affect us terrestrially, right, weaponization and militarization is a key one, right? So lest the stars totter with the guilt of man, right, there is a risk, a grave risk of space weaponization that weapons in space, satellites attacking other satellites could despoil the space environment in ways that for at least the foreseeable future are unfixable, right, and unchangeable, right? That threat of the Kessler syndrome. Electromagnetic interference and cyber threats, um, the electromagnetic spectrum is limited, right? And so electromagnetic interference is always a threat. Again, crowding as well. Space debris is both natural and man-made, and again, poses a threat to all who use the space environment. Space traffic management issues are intricately related to the problem of space debris. And so without the ability to track and to better organize orbits for the increasing number of satellites that are being launched by increasing numbers of states, by increasing numbers of private and commercial entities, right? Different orbits are going to become more crowded and more dangerous. Okay, so it's becoming more and more critical to develop a way in which we can organize orbits in a safe and you know, meaningful way so that we avoid collisions, avoid debris creation, and avoid the associated threats of those things. Extraterrestrial territorial competition, despite right, the prohibitions on national appropriation in international outer space law, this remains a big problem and it's only going to increase um, in its problematicness as we actually develop the ability to do things like mine the moon or extract resources from asteroids, right? Outer space resource extraction is obviously something that could be a great boon to humanity. The competition over those resources, just as competition for resources on earth, right? Can lead to competition between countries, violent competition between countries, right? The same thing can possibly occur in space as well. And then, of course, right, with the vast increase in private and commercial uses of space, right? Again, this crowding of outer space by states, by private actors, by militaries, by civil space programs. Right? There's an interplay between all of these actors that leads to some very, very interesting overlays of problems. And so to get back to the Ukraine example, right, and uh, Mr. Musk's Starlink satellites, interesting question, right? If the Russians cut off terrestrial internet in Ukraine 
And if the sole means of internet access in Ukraine becomes Elon Musk's Starlink satellites, do those become legally targetable under the laws of war, even though they're civilian satellites, if they're being used for military purpose? And if so, what would that look like? Okay. And there've been a wide range of ideas legally uh, with respect to how to respond to some of these threats. And you've seen multiple presidential administrations, um, basically every presidential administration since that of George W. Bush, right? So President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden, generally moving in the same direction from the US perspective. And the US perspective is largely this, the development of what at least initially would be non-binding rules of quote unquote responsible behavior in outer space, right? You've probably heard uh, if you follow space affairs and space issues, um, President Biden, Vice President Harris, right? Mention this, this phrase, right? Responsible behavior in outer space. Um, Vice President Harris chaired the first meeting of the National Space Council under the Biden administration back in September. This was a critical thing that she discussed during that meeting. The United States has worked with its international allies, uh, primarily the United Kingdom, to sponsor UN resolutions with respect to the idea of responsible behavior in outer space. The most recent of those was passed by the UN uh, back in early November of last year, um, pushing for the creation of a committee to examine this issue. What are responsible behaviors in outer space? What can be done to further develop those behaviors? Those efforts have been opposed by states like Russia and China, and Russia has been holding up the development of that committee, right, that was approved by the UN back in November. Now, another way in which some states would like to address some of these issues is through the development of new binding international law. I talked to you about the Outer Space Treaty because the Outer Space Treaty is the only treaty that really gets into issues of military and national, international security uh, type international law. There are four other binding space treaties, only three of which really matter. The Liability Convention, the Rescue and Return Agreement with respect to the Rescue and Return of Astronauts, and the Registration Convention, which is all about registering space objects. The fourth, the one that doesn't really matter too much, is what's known as the Moon Agreement. It's an international treaty that kind of expands on some of the outer space treaties, um, kind of celestial body type provisions. Um, it's only been signed onto by about 18 states, though, primarily because it radically restricts states' ability to extract resources from the moon or other celestial bodies. Okay? So it's not really received a whole lot of support. But the idea is that with new binding law, right, potentially new binding treaties with respect to arms limitation in outer space, we could solve some of these national and international security issues. And so Russia and China, for example, have proposed uh, what is called the, the PPWT, the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space Treaty. This was something that they first proposed um, in the early 2010s, provided an updated version kind of in the 2014-2015 timeline. The United States has opposed the PPWT for a number of reasons. Again, um, 
not speaking officially on behalf of the United States government, but generally speaking, because it lacks verification measures, and at least the initial version did not apply to terrestrial ASAT weapons. Okay. Now, the Russians and the Chinese claim that they have fixed some of those issues. Generally speaking, the US government still does not agree with that assessment. Okay. So we've got a US push for development with respect to responsible behavior in outer space, a push potentially for new binding international space law. And there's at least some suggestion that other national or international legal development could contribute to some of these issues, right? National legal development in the space domain could look like, for instance, United States national laws with respect to space debris minimization or mitigation, right? And to the extent that other countries look at that and say, hey, that's a good idea, and they copy us, you could see the development of, for instance, customary international law through those sorts of uses of national space law. Now, again, at least for now, the United States government is focusing on this uh, development of responsible behaviors in space. You saw that language initially in President Obama's national space policy that was published in 2010. It was repeated in President Trump's and through some of the actions of right, President Trump's UN representatives. And you see the focus on responsible behavior renewed under President Biden. Okay. And just from my own perspective in the Department of Defense, uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin just last July released um, what are called the tenets of responsible behavior for DOD activities in space, um, developing five tenets of responsible behavior for Space Force, Air Force, and the rest of the services to follow with respect to our own space activities, which includes things like mitigating the creation of harmful debris, increasing right, communication, improving space traffic management, and many of those things that we talked about earlier on. And so with that, that was kind of a quick, I know not overly quick, uh, discussion of some of those key issues. And now I would like to open it up to any questions that you have. Uh, great. Uh, thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, could I trouble you for the uh, uh, my uh, yes. targeting, I mean, my seating chart? Um, and uh, just as a reminder, uh, if you're in the room and want to be recognized, just raise your hand or pull your ear lobe or, you know, give me the high sign uh, if you want to be on the list. Um, and for uh, those people who are joining us uh, in cyberspace, if you want to send a question in the chat function, I'll uh, convey that to uh, Major Grunert. Um, so, uh, oh, and uh, we already have a, uh, a comment from uh, Fritz Heinzen. And uh, hold on just a second. Let me have to. Okay, um, so uh, Fritz, who's a uh, regular uh, remote joiner of our uh, NDISC seminar, writes, I'm familiar uh, with your uh, familiarity with Iran's space program, so I'd like to build my question around how far can the U.S. go in denying space to other hostile powers from the international law perspective? 
what types of space systems and what types of actions would allow for direct U.S. action to deny space to an adversary? And I, by that, I don't think he means the Klingons or the Romulans. I think he's talking about terrestrial adversaries. Yeah, this is a fascinating question. Um, so, and uh, thank you, sir, for uh, referencing one of the law review articles that I have written. I do appreciate that. Um, it is a fascinating question, right? What can the United States do to deny outer space to adversaries? Because based on the Outer Space Treaty, at least, the answer is we can't, right? Article one of the Outer Space Treaty, like we saw, creates that freedom of use, that freedom of exploration, that freedom of scientific discovery for any nation, right, that has signed the Outer Space Treaty. And generally speaking, the provisions of Article One have probably, for the most part, been recognized as customary international law. Now, the problem, of course, is that with respect to states like Iran, states like North Korea, right, the difference between a space launch vehicle and an intercontinental ballistic missile is nothing, right? I mean, even Elon Musk himself has said that there's essentially no difference between um, some of his SpaceX rockets and an intercontinental ballistic missile. It's just that one goes up into space and one comes back down, right? And so part of this question of denying space is intricately related to the problem of arms control with respect to things like intercontinental ballistic missiles. And of course, the US has been trying to prevent nations like North Korea, nations like Iran from developing inter intercontinental ballistic missiles for a long time. And if you look at some of the reporting that has been done on that issue, right, this has been a persistent thing among presidential administrations for at least the last 20 years, although we don't necessarily know exactly what was going on under President Trump. We don't know what was going on now, but there's been a wide range of reporting, for instance, on possible secretive sabotage efforts on the intercontinental ballistic <clears throat> missile program in Iran, which was the focus of my law review article. Because to the extent that those things target the space program rather than the intercontinental ballistic missile program, are those a violation of the Outer Space Treaty? I think that's a very good question. Now, I think that to the extent a state was using outer space for quote unquote peaceful purposes, right? And it does appear that at least Iran, maybe not really North Korea, but at least Iran has quasi peaceful uses of space with respect to putting satellites in orbit, um, satellites that will remotely sense areas of Iran, contribute to agriculture and the like. We really can't or shouldn't per our treaty obligations, prevent them from doing that. To the extent that maybe we could show that that research was contributing directly to an intercontinental ballistic missile, the international legal questions, right, would still abound. And whether or not it would technically be legal, I'm not really sure that it would, but might we interfere? Well, we might, and we might have already. So not really sure that was a great answer, but... It's probably the best I can do. Uh, <clears throat> super. Um, is that McLean? Super. Oh, I had a question. Hey, hold on a second, McLean. We're going to mic you up here. 
at least temporarily. Thank you. Um, I had a question regarding uh, legal precedents, uh, both for debris in, 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 in space uh, and also for like the launch and control of satellites. Uh, you mentioned how space is getting crowded with satellites and also crowded with debris. If there is a legal precedent to how the international community would govern who's allowed to launch satellites and like where they're allowed to be, where does that come from? Um, and if there's not a legal precedent, how would it be enforceable? And obviously, we know with international treaties, sometimes it's really hard to enforce. So how would the international community go about enforcing such a set of legal precedents? Yes, this is a phenomenal question uh, because there, there are so many parts to it, and it is really critical as more and more states are launching and putting things into orbit. With respect to an international regime for satellite launch and placement, really the only one that matters significantly is the one for geostationary orbital slots. Okay. So geostationary orbital slots are um, equatorial slots that are far enough out uh, from the Earth that the object in orbit is orbiting at the same speed as the Earth's rotation. Okay, so basically, a satellite is over a fixed point over the equator, and it appears to sit there, right, because it's orbiting at the same speed as the Earth rotates. These are very, very valuable orbits because if your satellite is just right there, you can always communicate with it, right? So you're getting the signal constantly as long as you're within its range, right, of vision on the terrestrial globe. And so because of the value of those orbits, uh, very early on, kind of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, there came about kind of an international um, regime for deciding who could put satellites in those slots, right? Because the fear was that the main spacefaring countries, the Soviet Union, the United States, would take up all of those valuable slots with their own satellites and leave all of the other countries out to dry. And so the International Telecommunications Union um, became kind of the arbiter of these particular right, orbits, these geostationary orbits. And they have a very um, complex system. We don't have to get into like the specifics here. They have a very complex system for awarding those orbital slots. Uh, and if you receive that award, you have seven years to get a satellite into that slot to use it. Um, but with respect to all other orbits, there really is no international system for deciding who gets to put what where. And so the, the only international legal kind of system that's in place is the one that was created under the registration convention, because there's supposed to be um, registries, both with a state that launches and with the United Nations, that generally speaking, tell you basic information about a satellite's orbit. So another country would theoretically know, hey, don't necessarily put a satellite right into that exact same orbit because you run the risk of collision, right? That said, you mentioned the problem of enforcement. There really is no enforcement mechanism for the registration convention. It's one of its big weaknesses. And so many states don't bother to register things for months after they launch. Some states don't register them at all. And so it's been a very weak method of determining, right, what's on orbit and where. Many states have come to rely on other space tracking systems, right? So uh, the United States Air Force, now the Space Force, has run pretty consistently since the 1960s what's called the Space Surveillance Network. 
Um, it tracks objects of various sizes on orbit. And the United States has been very quick to share information about possible collisions with other countries. So satellites can be moved around or shifted. Um, and, it, and you still see that sometimes, right? During 2019, right, some satellites had to move because Starlink satellites were on a possible collision course with them. It doesn't always work though, right? There have been, there's been at least one major incident of satellite collision on orbit. Um, that was in 2009 between a defunct Soviet satellite and a US telecommunications satellite. And as more and more space objects and more and more pieces of debris are in various orbits, right? The risk of those sorts of collisions increases. So there really is no international system for most orbits to really award orbital slots to one state versus another or one company versus another. Um, to some degree, it's just a matter of at least theoretically knowing what's in a certain orbit based on those sorts of registries and then hoping for the best and hoping that like the surveillance network and other space traffic systems will tell you before a collision happens. Great, thank you. Um, Dan Lindley. Thank you, Anika. Okay, so um, my first question or set of questions is just curiosity. I want a little more briefing on space debris and how it occurs. So you've mentioned there's been one satellite collision, there's been a couple ASAT tests. I can imagine that there's, you know, separation stages as rockets go up. But when you read about it, there's all these gazillion small parts everywhere. So how does this happen? How is it getting generated? Just a little brief on that. Then you mentioned something in the slide about Keller syndrome or something like that. And I'm imagining that means there's going to be a catastrophic amount all of a sudden, like you reach a tipping point, there's gonna be so much degree that everything just goes. Is that what that syndrome is? Yeah, so it, great question, sir. I'll take them one at a time. So first of all, a bit of a back briefing on debris, how it occurs, where it comes from. So you're absolutely right that at least during the early right, launches, and really up until SpaceX developed right the reusable rocket body that would return to Earth and that you could you know, launch again, um, multi-stage rockets would just float around in orbit, right? The first stage would get it to orbit, it would separate, there would be a second stage, possibly a third stage, right? Some of the you know, rockets that got astronauts to the moon were mini multi-stage rockets, right? And so there are, I think, several thousand rocket stage bodies floating around in orbit. That's one source of space debris. Um, there is some natural space debris that occurs, right? Little fragments of asteroids and space dust and things that, you know, get sucked into Earth's orbit from, you know, moving bodies that are traversing our orbit from somewhere else in the solar system. But there are also, right, little pieces of stuff that come off rocket bodies, right, when stages separate, small screws, right, pieces of you know, foil, um, many satellites have, uh, right, those solar panels that deploy to collect energy. So when those things deploy, right, things pop off the satellite and are floating around. Um, as small pieces of debris hit other things, they'll create other small pieces of debris. Some things are goofy, right, like a hammer that was dropped during a spacewalk. Um, but the, the biggest problem is that 
when you have these launches, when you have this stuff coming off of rocket launches, whether it's through separation, through other things, uh, the biggest problem is depending on how far it is up in orbit, it's going to take between decades and centuries to deorbit, right? Aside from the stuff that's in like very low Earth orbits, um, which can maybe deorbit within a couple of months. So Sputnik, for example, very first satellite, um, deorbited itself because its orbit was so low, I think within two months of its launch, right? It was already gone. Um, most satellites, though, are much higher than that now, and so is a good deal of space debris. Now, there have been a couple of major human-caused space debris-creating events, the biggest being the 2007 Chinese ASAT test, which um, blew between 3,000 and question mark, right? Pieces of debris up into higher orbits that is still trying to deorbit and trying to come down, right? Much of that debris has not yet deorbited. And so for every debris creating ASAT test or event, right? Hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of debris are created, which float around in orbit, hitting other debris, causing ever smaller pieces. The Kessler syndrome, um, what you said about a tipping point is exactly right. The idea is that effectively the amount of debris in orbit become reaches that tipping point and it creates a never-ending cascade of debris creation so one piece of debris hits another that creates let's say five pieces those five pieces hit another five pieces create 10 you know that sort of um, continuous cascade of debris such that you have a belt of debris in that particular orbit, making at least that orbit unusable for the foreseeable future, right? Question mark, depends on how far out that orbit is. How about the people that got two follow-ups on this? Like what's the future of space debris? What's the future of, of space debris? Like how, how are we gonna solve this problem if we're gonna solve it? And I was really greatly relieved when the Chinese just had that satellite that was able to grab a satellite and toss it into further, you know, that was really, Peace loving, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Could be peace loving. Could be good. Could be. Could be. Could be. Um, man, well, so that's the million dollar question, right? How do you solve this problem of space debris? Um, a lot of suggestions have been made. So far, the only ones that have really been put into practice are hey, let's not create more, right? So <laughs> the, um, the under kind of US national space regulation, right? NASA, and then this was subsequently applied to commercial launches like SpaceX, Blue Origin as well, right? The idea is minimize the creation of new space debris, right? That's also something that, again, has now pretty much been applied to the DOD probably through Secretary Austin's tenets of responsible behavior. Problem is though, right? As you probably laughingly said what I said, hey, our goal is to not create more that doesn't do anything about the debris that's already in orbit, right? And so a lot of suggestions have been made with respect to how to clean up orbit. Um, the Chinese tug is one method, right? And obviously we have had similar methods that we, the United States, have utilized in the past, right? One of the big controversies from a quote-unquote space weapons perspective was the robotic arm of the space shuttle. Soviets hated it because they said it was a space weapon, right? Because it can grab their satellites. Now, we never used it to grab their satellites. We insisted, right, that it was a peaceful use of space, 
because all we wanted to do was bring our own satellites right into the shuttle bay to fix them up, which is what we did. But we could have used that arm, right, to take satellites out of orbit. Oh, this satellite is dead. Let's grab that. All right, we'll take it out. Take it out. Take it out, right? Now, there's a couple of problems with that, not the least of which is it's radically expensive, right, if you're going to launch the space shuttle to try and, like, piecemeal take satellites out of orbit like that. So it doesn't really solve the problem. And it's a massive, massive cost, right? And so people have suggested all manner of things, right? Catching debris in a net, right? Harpooning it and tugging it, kind of like it seems uh, this Chinese space tug did with um, their defunct satellite. Um, other kind of more interesting methods of deorbiting, like kind of electromagnetic field creation to slow down the orbits of things and hopefully push them into lower orbits. Part of the problem with all of this is this question of militarization and weaponization, right? Because what can be used to pull debris out of orbit can also be used to harm an active satellite, generally speaking, right? That was the problem with the electronic arm. It's the problem with the Chinese type, right? Same problem, different day, different state, right? And so while a lot of these satellites might be dead, right? Nobody wants their dead satellite taken by somebody else, right? We don't want an old Corona satellite or a Keyhole satellite pulled down by the Chinese or the Russians, even if it's space junk, right? Because we don't want them looking at it, even if it's old, right? And the Chinese, the Russians feel the same way. So that's part of what has to be addressed or gotten over or somehow I don't know, ignored, right? If you want to say, okay, let's go after the very small pieces, but we'll leave, you know, intact satellites alone. You have to get over that hurdle if you're going to ever solve the space debris issue. Very, very difficult issue to solve. Incredibly difficult. Okay, uh, Cora. First of all, thank you so much for giving the talk. It was really interesting. Um, I was wondering, as space law continues to develop how do you see it being adjudicated like do you think like if someone transgresses a state a space law how do you see that being punished is it going to be like unilateral through the un or like how do you see that developing it's a fascinating question because largely right we don't know the answer just because we haven't seen it there have been very few i guess true applications of international space law in any way that would be adversarial between states right um one example, uh, we didn't talk about the liability convention during my primary talk because it doesn't really involve military stuff. Um, but there is one kind of big example of a liability convention question when a Soviet satellite that was deorbiting exploded over northern Canada and contaminated like wide ranges of the Northwest Territories with like radioactive debris. The Canadians were actually able to collect from the Soviets under the liability convention. So there were international negotiations that occurred. And while the Canadians didn't get as much as they spent to clean it up, they got something, right? And so that was just a bilateral negotiation, right, between two parties to the treaty, and they worked it out. There hasn't been a whole lot of other things that have really been um, adjudicated, so to speak, under international space law. There are sometimes some very critical comments made by governments against other governments, right? You saw that last year in November when the, the um, Russian Federation tested its direct descent ASAT missile, blew up their satellite. 
Um, you had a wide range of states criticizing them largely for being irresponsible. Okay? Um, many of the United States international allies have adopted that language uh, of responsibility with respect to how they address um, perceived, uh, I don't want to say violations because that sounds too extreme, but perceived bad behavior or irresponsible behavior by international actors. Um, when the Chinese conducted their test in 2007, only one state, Japan, accused them of violating the Outer Space Treaty. And Japan wasn't specific about how they thought the Chinese had violated um, And that didn't lead to any international adjudication. Um, for example, right, there's at least a theoretical possibility that perhaps the International Court of Justice could be brought into play with respect to, um, you know, contentions between states in the outer space arena. Again, that just generally speaking hasn't really happened yet. And so I think we're likely to see in perhaps the near future how, you know, some of those things might work out. Um, and I think that a wider range of states are adopting this language of responsible versus irresponsible behavior. And so for instance, the, uh, the Chinese government um, actually filed a diplomatic note with the UN in December, criticizing the US for allowing Starlink um, to have its satellites orbit um, a particular distance from their new uh, crewed space station, right? They sent up their space station body uh, early last year it does have a crew of several Chinese uh, taikonauts. And, you know, the Chinese said that the UN, United States was acting irresponsibly by allowing Starlink to use its satellites within an orbit of so many miles, right, of this crewed space station. And so whether we're going to see like a greater willingness by states to take each other to international courts or to try and settle things bilaterally, I don't know. But again, at least for now, the, the real life instances that we've seen have mostly been bilateral under treaties to which both parties have been state parties. Um, and we'll see what it is in the future, because I think it can go any number of ways. Very fascinating issue, though. Uh, great. Uh, just before I recognize uh, Alex, um, Fritz uh, sent a... Uh, uh, message saying that CNN Business did a piece this morning on Steve Wozniak of Apple fame and his new firm, Privateer, which will be attacking the space debris issue. It sounds like uh, solid waste disposal in uh, outer space. I wonder if it's headquartered in New Jersey. Um, but uh, I, I digress. Alex. Hard to follow up from that. Um, so thanks for a fascinating talk. So I really learned a lot from uh, someone who doesn't really study this topic. Um, so one observation and then one question that directly follows from the question, uh, from the observation, which somewhat builds on the earlier question about adjudication. So my observation of your presentation is that it heavily focuses on the major powers, US, USSR, or Russia now, and China as the main drivers of institutionalizing all these rules of engagement in space. But I think there is a glaring problem here, which is that these are the same actors who are inv involved in the safe competition themselves. So I think um, the rules that, to the extent that they're advanced, may nevertheless appear self-serving. 
even if it's not, and even if the actors are all claiming that they're impartial, they're defensive, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the best example of this really comes from your uh, conversation or your discussion about, uh, you know, the U.S.-USSR dynamics mm-hmm. and shifting of position in the 60s because of their relative shifts in power, right? Um, effectively, basically, uh, weaponizing international law to try and uh, keep their superiority and then stand by their adversary. So, um, and of course, the fact that these major countries are increasingly becoming more competitive in their overall political relations is not helping either. So my question is, what do you think are the prospects for uh, third-party actors, international uh, organizations, middle powers, you know, playing a more active role in terms of generating momentum for uh, f- facilitating the, the establishment of these uh, rules of engagement in space um, so as to bolster the perceived credibility of these rules. Thanks. I think that's a phenomenal question because that has been something that uh, certainly non-spacefaring powers have been very, very concerned with since the 1960s. If you go back to, for instance, the debates in the uh, travaux for both the Declaration of Legal Principles and the Outer Space Treaty itself, you'll see countries, right, like India, like the Philippines, others, right, really critical of this fact that you don't have specificity on the peaceful use issue, right? They wanted exclusively peaceful use of outer space. And the the Indian delegation especially was very, very... um, had had very, very strongly worded uh, criticisms of that particular issue with respect to the declaration. And then again, right during the Trudeau for the development of the Outer Space Treaty. Now, at the time, right, with the Cold War competition, as you said, right, Soviet Union, United States, basically able to kind of bulldoze whichever countries, whichever way, right? Western Bloc had to fall with the US, Eastern Bloc had to fall with the Soviets. Um, And... Uh, you know, since since China has really uh, developed itself as a major space player, there hasn't been a really significant development of new, certainly binding international space law. Um, but you're absolutely right. And I think that this question of uh, how you characterize them as middle powers, I think that kind of these big three, right, the United States, the Russian Federation, the People's Republic of China, are going to have to take greater account of the perspectives of other states. Now, up until now, at least in the binding space treaties and whatnot, any attempts by those sorts of states to challenge the regime that was developed during the 60s have failed. And so we talked about those geostationary orbital slots, for example. really one of the only major challenges to the non-appropriation provisions so far, right, of international outer space law came from nine equatorial states that banded together in the mid-1970s to say, hey, we think this ITU system is totally bogus because these are very valuable orbital slots. And hey, guess what? Many of them are above our countries. Why shouldn't we own them? Why shouldn't we get to take advantage of these very lucrative, very important uh, telecommunications or other uses of those particular geostationary slots, right? Why should a geostationary slot above the Philippines 
get awarded to the Soviet Union? Why should a very lucrative orbital slot above Brazil get awarded to the United Kingdom or the United States, right? The rest of the world totally rejected their arguments, which were um, put forward in something that was called the Bogota Declaration, right? So you can, you can go, you can read it, you can see what they say about kind of the unique nature of geostationary orbit and why they don't believe that it should qualify as an area that the Outer Space Treaty would apply to. All of the other states that had signed the Outer Space Treaty were basically like, no, no, right? But I think that more and more, as a larger number of states and you know, not the traditional spacefaring powers are utilizing space, whether that means that they're developing an indigenous launch capability or whether that means right, that they're purchasing satellites or purchasing other orbital vehicles from other states, I think that their opinions with respect to space law are going to have to be taken into account a lot more because the major space players aren't necessarily going to be able to kind of push them in certain directions as they were during those days of Cold War great power competition, right? So to the extent that we're seeing greater development of international space law, whether it's binding or whether it's non-binding, probably particularly if it's non-binding, there's going to be more of a dialogue with those sorts of states to take their views into account. Um, I would note though that with some of those states like India, uh, they too have amended their ideas with respect to some of the things that they complained a lot about during the development of kind of the international space law regime. Um, and of course have now totally accepted the non-aggressive versus exclusively peaceful perception of that as they themselves have increased their outer space technological development. So to some degree, right, those middle states, if they become major space powers, might become more like the major space players of old than they otherwise would. So we have uh, four more questions and uh, about 12 minutes, not to rush you or breathe down the back of your neck, but just to give you some situational awareness. Um, our next questioner is Nick uh, Campbell Ceramiantis. Nick Campbell Ceramiantis, sorry. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go a little bit further than Alex did, but from a similar perspective, which is that given the difficulty of detection of violations of, for example, the utilization of space for aggressive capabilities, because as you yourself point out, there's a lot of dual use potential in a lot of technologies, A. B, the fact that, you know, you have limited capacity for in-person inspection when it is up in outer space. So you have to rely on satellites that are primarily in the possession of these three great powers. And I'm just curious, why, why does the law matter at all in this case? Because it seems to me like what you're really talking about when you're talking about things that have been enforceable are these sort of, I would call them akin to property laws, like this is my area of space, but nothing about sort of the non-aggression or like non-utilization of space for aggressive technology seems to be enforceable or even um, uh, frequently detectable. I mean, the closest corollary I could come up with is like a nuclear inspections regime. But obviously, again, that's a lot harder to pull off when you can't just send inspectors in the ground, you know, on foot to the ground. You have to actually have the capability to get to space to investigate what other people are doing in space. And the only people who can enforce 
you know, or vis-a-vis whatever mechanisms, anything that physical in outer space would be those same powers. So it's almost like a, if you, if thinking about it that way, it seems like it's almost like an exacerbation of the uh, disproportionate weight given to these great powers Mm -hmm. uh, relative to the way that they operate in the internet, in the international legal system, sans outer space. Also, I want to know when the lightsabers are coming, but that's my, you know, well, not sure when the lightsabers are coming. The laser weapons maybe sooner than that. I'm just kidding. I don't know. We do have some lasers, but they're not weaponized. Um, so it is a great question, right? And this question of enforceability, obviously, is one that pertains to international law as a whole, right? It's something my students ask about all the time, right? Does international law even matter if X, Y, and Z can happen, right? If Russia can invade Ukraine and nobody stops it. If the United States can invade Iraq and nobody stops it, right? Um, What use does international law have? I think that international law does have uses. I think that generally speaking, the international outer space legal regime has been adhered to fairly well. With respect to the question of aggression, it is an interesting question. Whether or not it would be undetectable, I think, depends on what it was. There are ways that you can detect what people are doing in outer space, possibly through their interference with your systems or through other ways, perhaps, which is all I'll say about that. Um, So whether or not it's something that you could detect Again, depending on what it was, I think you might be able to. Um, Obviously, we were, uh, to use kind of a public domain example, for for instance, um, we were able to detect, right, what uh, the Russians were doing with respect to their on-orbit ASAT test, uh, the one that General Raymond uh, and also General Dickinson have criticized the Russians for conducting. And what we were able to detect, right, and again, published in sources like Space News, Totally Public, um, was that a Russian satellite seemed to be launching a projectile that could track another satellite and question mark, right? The speculation being in the press that that projectile could be used as basically a suicide kill ASAT to destroy another on-orbit satellite. Okay. And so, again, it seems that we have some ways to detect certain aggressive behaviors, depending on what those behaviors are and depending on how threatening they are. Now, of course, there are other behaviors, right? Again, these uh, maybe military support functions like reconnaissance, right? Um, that mm, Maybe we can't detect, but we've learned to just say we have to live with this, right? The Soviet Union didn't like being remotely sensed by U.S. satellites. But when they developed their own reconnaissance satellites, right, turnabout is fair play. We had to put up with that, too. So that, though, is not necessarily an aggressive use of space, right? That is, at least for most powers, perceived as a non-aggressive maybe even non-military, although let's be honest, it's military, use of space. Great. Uh, Andrew Delvecchio? Uh, Thank you for 
<clears throat> Sorry, thank you for your talk. Uh, and I'll try to keep it quick because we're almost out of time. Uh, you mentioned that uh, current space law only prohibits the use of weapons of mass destruction uh, in space. And given new capabilities in the space sphere to attack communication satellites, uh, GPS, early warning systems, things like that, is there a push to change the definition of what weapons of mass destruction are, given that these capabilities enable you to cripple infrastructure in ways just as deadly, if not more deadly than a nuclear weapon or a biological weapon? This is a great question because that definition of weapons of mass destruction is question mark, right? It's not defined anywhere in the Outer Space Treaty. The best that we've been able to do, right, is kind of compare other international definitions of that term to apply it, right, to that language of Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty. And generally speaking, what many commentators come down on is kind of like you said, What's a weapon of mass destruction? It's a nuclear, biological, radiological, or chemical weapon, right? Those are what weapons of mass destruction are. End of story. So if it's a conventional weapon, all fair, right? Except a conventional weapon in space could potentially despoil the entire space environment. If it did, it could cripple right, all of the systems that we talked about on the slide with respect to why outer space is important, right? economically cripple societies, uh, totally destroy our ability for geonavigation, which would in turn have massive uh, problems for any ship that was out on the ocean right now, any plane that was in the air, right? That sounds like the effect of a weapon of mass destruction, right? Um, and so it is a very, very interesting question. There has not really been, to my knowledge, a, an international push to better define the term. I think that there is, though, at least in kind of the academic debate within international space law, a very serious question as to whether even conventional weapons, given the unique nature of the space environment and given the wide-ranging consequences of interference in that environment, could constitute weapons of mass destruction under that definition. Thank you. Last question uh, from Benjamin. Uh, thank you, sir, for your presentation. This was really fascinating stuff. Um, it seemed to me that most current legal frameworks uh, for outer space are focused on nation state actors, their actions. And you kind of alluded to this a little bit, um, talking about Ukraine and how Elon Musk was providing satellites to provide Internet um, there. So I was kind of curious, you know, at what level do you think that the launching and the operations of private companies in outer space uh, should be regulated? Should that be under federal law, international space law? Is there even any room for that in the current framework? Um, you know, because I'm thinking of this in the context of, you know, if these bit large private companies that continue to expand become multinational and they're launching their equipment from one state, but they're operating out of a different state and they don't represent a nation state. Um, and particularly as they may become more involved in military conflicts, I'm thinking of instances where um, satellite images are being used by private individuals in, in the buildup to the current conflict in Ukraine to kind of analyze and follow and track Russian buildup of troops. At what point do we draw the line where private companies are, A, involved in military conflicts or are proliferating non-peaceful actions in space? And then if that's the case, how, do, how are they held accountable? At what level sh can or should they be held accountable? That is a very deep question that I probably will not be able to answer incredibly three well. Minutes. Um, that's okay. I can do this, three minutes. So first of all, Private corporations, private companies operating in space or conducting their own space launches, SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, 
and others, right? They're regulated under national space law, but they are regulated under national space law because of international space law obligations. So if you look at Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, again, not one that we discussed uh, in this presentation, but a very, very critical article, it actually pertains not just to state action in space, state action being like state-sponsored action, but actions of non-state actors acting out of a state. Okay, and so um, private corporations like SpaceX have to abide by national law because the United States is on the hook for their space activities regardless under the Outer Space Treaty. And so if we did not have national laws to regulate them, we would be exposing ourselves as a country to international responsibility and international liability obligations. We're still exposing ourselves to international liability obligations, um, which is a follow-up to one of the other things that you said, right? If corporations go to another country to launch or are launching from other places, any country that launches or procures the launch of a space mission is liable for whatever happens, whatever damage occurs as a result of that mission. And so to the extent that SpaceX is a licensed US company, we would be deemed to be in charge, or at least one party with respect to their actions, even if they launched from another state. That state would also be liable um, in kind of a monetary damages kind of sense. Now, how those companies could be held responsible for maybe their military-related activities, right? And so uh, one example, right, satellite images from um, Maxar, I think, is one of the um, private companies that's been putting out a lot of satellite images with respect to Russian buildup around Ukraine. To the extent that those images were used for some nefarious purpose, right? I mean, first of all, I think there would be a very serious question as to what extent Maxar would even be responsible for that, um, because a picture is just a picture, right? And it could be used for a nefarious purpose, but it could also be used for good. So uh, I'm not sure how that issue would shake out. Um, but presumably there would be some sort of, I'm not sure that it would be an international like law issue per se. It would almost be more of a corporate liability type of issue, I would imagine, um, at least for a private space actor that was acting in their private capacity. Now, if they were acting at government direction, that could be different right? That could entail, right, state responsibility issues, state liability issues, and things like that. Um, so it would largely depend on how they were operating, and why, and at whose direction. And I see that I'm out of time, so I'll have to stop there. But if you want to talk afterwards, we can talk. More. Okay, uh, well, that was uh, terrific. And I'm sorry that uh, we ran short of time. But uh, um, that just means we're going to have to have you back at some point. Yes. But before I invite everybody to uh, thank Major Grunert for a fascinating talk, I wanted to uh, make a couple of uh, public service announcements. Uh, March is a big month on the uh, NDISC dance card. And in fact, uh, tomorrow we have a flash panel from 12.30 to 1.30 uh, on Russian military performance in Ukraine. Uh, what have we learned? Be chaired by uh, my colleague Dan Lindley and uh, other members of the panel will uh, include uh, Ian Johnson uh, and uh, Eugene Goltz. And that'll be all 
virtual. So uh, the uh, uh, Zoom link for that uh, should have gone out on the announcement, piggybacking on the announcement for today. Um, after spring break, during which Professor Lindley and I and a few other people are going to Los Alamos and Sandia National Labs to get a crash course in uh, building the bomb, um, we are going to have a, a couple of other uh, terrific seminars. Tuesday, March 22nd, we're going to have a roundtable on the ethics of new weapons technology uh, uh, consisting of uh, Major General Blue Suter, retired, uh, Bob Ladiff, who's a triple domer and was uh, uh, Deputy Director for Engineering of uh, NRO, uh, Scott Sagan from uh, 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 Stanford, uh, Sarah Kreps from Cornell, uh, John Lindsay from the new cyber school at Georgia Tech, and Biba Sobralik. Uh, from Oxford. Uh, so the ethics of new weapons technology. And then wrapping up a really terrific march, which you kicked off, uh, Matt Dust, who's the legislative assistant to Senator Bernie Sanders, is going to talk about the progressive uh, foreign policy uh, agenda. So uh, a lot of exciting stuff going on. So, uh, Jeremy, thank you very much for uh, terrific talk. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.